0: Case S-02, E-02, Code Talkers It's night time in early October of 1918. We're on the Western Front, the major theatre of war during World War I, and, more specifically, we're in the middle of what would later become known as the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. 47 harrowing days will turn this military action into the second bloodiest battle in American history. By the close of November 1918, a combination of inexperience, tactical choices and the global H1N1 influenza A pandemic will claim over 350,000 French, German and American lives. Back on the front lines, however, the end of November is a lifetime away. Before that seven hellish weeks can pass, 1.2 million US troops need to clear the Argonne forest and reorganise into two forces. But there is a problem. A very serious problem. US communications are compromised. The German military has successfully tapped telephone lines, and not only are they intercepting the coded messages, they are deciphering them too. But there's more. The Germans are also capturing runners sent to deliver messages directly. In fact, during this time, one in every four runners is captured or killed. But let's get back to the Western Front, to the Argonne Forest, to that night in early October of 1918. A company commander for the 142nd Infantry Regiment, Captain Lawrence, is overhearing a conversation between two of his soldiers. Solomon Lewis and Mitchell Bob, but he doesn't understand a word of it. And in that instant, Captain Lawrence has an idea that will change not only the direction of this war, but also of the war that would inevitably come after it. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading, at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. Why does it matter so much if US communications are compromised? Well, at its simplest, no comms, no army. Without instructions coming down from HQ to tell the infantry, air force, navy and ops what to do, instead of having lots of very large groups of people working together in seamless, coordinated harmony, you end up with an awful lot of people milling about with guns and bombs, wondering which way to point them. Comms are the nervous system in the military body. But every time a signal is sent to the hands to strike or the feet to march, that message is at risk of being picked up, understood, and acted upon by the enemy. Imagine a boxing match. If you know that your opponent's brain just holds their right fist to punch you in the jaw, you can quickly dodge, duck, and maybe even attack their now undefended right-hand ribs. In other words, that split-second insight gives you a critical advantage an opportunity to act to both protect yourself and then attack the enemy. The exact same principle operates on a much larger scale in the various arenas of war. So, for as long as there have been wars, there have been comms, orders, briefings, updates, queries, emergency signals, much more besides. And for as long as there have been comms, there have been enemies trying to intercept them, all to gain that crucial advantage of foreknowledge. Of course, if you know that the enemy is snooping on your comms, the next logical step is to make the messages unreadable so that even if they are intercepted, it just doesn't matter anyway because the enemy will be unable to read them. Thus, centuries ago, we learned that military comms needed to be encoded or encrypted in some way. And, very quickly, the enemy learned that they would need to crack those codes and encryptions. Thus, the intelligence arms race was born and very quickly intensified. Oh, so you have codes, the enemy said. Bring forth the codebreakers. Oh, well, you have codebreakers now, replied the opponent. Then we shall find better code makers, and they will create even better codes. And back and forth it went over the centuries. So just as kinetic war, with its physical weaponry and bloodshed, evolved from swords and daggers to spitfires and destroyers, at the same time an intellectual war of scientists and academics silently escalated, as each tried to create unbreakable codes, and tried in turn to crack the codes of their enemies that they might reveal the contents and give their side that precious advantage of insight. Comms, then, are one of the critical infrastructures of war, and because of their importance they attract some of the most heated battles, not usually with guns or bombs, but more often with pens and brains. As all this suggests, successful interception and decryption by one side almost inevitably means more deaths and greater losses for the other. Instead of making an educated guess, the enemy can accurately dodge your expensive surprise attack And launch a precise, covert, damaging counter-offensive. They can deploy troops and resources only where needed and focus their time accordingly. If they know your army is currently exhausted, they can take the opportunity to repair, recoup, reform, or worse, attack. And if they know an all-out attack is coming, they can plan, organise, execute. With a few exceptions, it is generally better to be a much smaller force with complete access to all the enemy's comms and total insight to all their movements and intentions than it is to be a substantially larger force operating completely in the dark. And if you can have full insight whilst keeping your enemy completely shut out, that is a double-win condition. Compromised communications then are not merely important, they're absolutely critical. They can make the difference between not just winning or losing, but doing so in such a way that the outcome is keenly felt for generations. The problem is though, as I've said, for every new and better code that one side's code maker comes up with, the other side comes up with a better code breaker. And eventually, under the sheer weight of intellectual effort, many human-made codes will simply fail, especially if they are used many times for hundreds or thousands of messages. Anything a human makes, a human can unmake, after all. So how do you come up with the uncrackable code? Or at least a code that will take so long to crack that the war will long be over by the time the enemy has figured it out. Back we go again to the Argonne Forest, to that night in early October of 1918 when the company commander for the 142nd Infantry Regiment, Captain Lawrence, here is his two soldiers, Solomon Lewis and Mitchell Bob, talking. Remember, he didn't understand a word, and there's a very good reason for this. They are speaking in their native language. Choctaw. At the time, this was spoken by only a few thousand people in the whole world, and very little of it was written down. In fact, only a few Native American peoples had populations above 20,000, and any writing in that language that did exist tended to be only the Bible and hymns. Now, every language is technically a code. I mean, in linguistics we talk about people code-switching when we mean that they're going back and forth between two or more different languages. So, English is no less a code than Choctaw or Ancient Greek or Dothraki, it's just that some codes you'll know the codebook for, you'll know what sense to assign to the various parts of it, and other codes you don't. The codebook was given to you when you were a child, or if you've learned a second language when you're older than you've learned it as an adult, the codebook exists in your brain. But, as is kind of obvious, English is not a great code, linguistically speaking or militarily speaking, for conveying top-secret intelligence. Lots of people have that codebook completely memorised, so if the message is intercepted, it can be cracked very quickly, if not instantly. By contrast, a language spoken by a tiny fraction of the world's population, with very little in the way of written-down grammar, is perfect. Imagine, for instance, that someone intercepts a message in a mystery language. Now, to recognise and identify a language you don't speak, you need to have already had a reasonable amount of exposure to it. If you've never heard that language before, there's no way, just from listening, to pluck its name out of thin air. And of course, when you don't have that, then you can't figure out who its native speakers might be. I mean, that's assuming there even are any native speakers. It could, after all, be a totally constructed language, a conlang. Those do exist. So your first and most immediate option then is to try to brute force the code. So You basically try to crack it from the outside, piece by piece, sound by sound, word by word, up through the vocabulary to the level of semantics and syntax and so on. Now, this is arguably the most difficult and labour-intensive method. Depending on the language and the linguist, it's honestly not very likely to succeed. Now, you might think, well, yeah, but babies do this all the time. That's how they learn language. And I would say to that, well, yes and also no. Babies usually have caregivers who repeatedly point out objects to them, name them, describe them, pick up words that the baby says and extend them and then encourage longer formulations and correct them and so on. That's very different from just listening to the same string of noises that you've intercepted 50 times in a row and praying for the inspiration that will help you to begin to understand them. Anyway, Let's imagine that the German military somehow get over this first obstacle and they figure out that this is Choctaw. And from that then they can start to divine the native speakers of this language. Their military intelligence analysts and linguists can now start to research this language and they'll discover that it's spoken by the Choctaw people who live in what is now North America. But then their next obstacle is going to become apparent. The lack of written material. Now, especially in a wartime scenario, this is a major problem because documents are easy to steal and smuggle. Better yet, you can make copies of them. You can distribute those copies to military linguists and they can be learned from by any number of people over months and years. Once that knowledge genie is out of the bottle in document form, there's no stuffing it back in. But in this case, with no realistic supply of books or texts to use, They have to move on to the next option, getting hold of a speaker of the language. Now, how do you do this? Well, I mean, one method, you could try to send an agent to infiltrate the US and find one of the very few speakers and maybe even convince them to train you, but then you've just given yourself 10 new headaches. Is your agent going to escape back to you again once they've learned? Are they going to try to convey a translation correspondence course back to HQ? Are you going to send them intercepted communications, have them translate them and send the translations back? I mean, none of these are good. Telephone was still considered to be a pretty sophisticated comms medium back then, but if your agent is transmitting, especially over enemy lines, then those translations could themselves end up being re-intercepted. And if you tell your agent to smuggle the comms over land, disguised or hidden somehow, you can look up steganography if you like, By the time the intel gets back to you at HQ, it might be weeks out of date. And even if technology and time weren't already against you, there's another problem anyway, and that's the human brain. As anyone who has tried to learn another language during adulthood will know, mastering a whole new language under intense pressure in a very short space of time is exceedingly difficult. Fluency cannot be achieved in months or even, many would argue, in years. Sometimes you may study a language for 30 years and be a very good speaker of it but never really be deemed fluent. So no matter how quickly an agent got in place, they still couldn't start being useful for at least a few months. I mean, let's go back to our baby example from earlier. Babies are usually fully immersed in one or more languages that they hear and practice every single day and they get lots of guidance and loads of assistance. There's no prior learning to get in their way, and even with all of this, we'd still consider a four-year-old to be just about adept at a basic level. Anyway, there is, of course, a much simpler solution, and I did kind of mention it earlier on. Not every Choctaw speaker is back home. Some are in the military serving for the United States. And some are right there in places like France, in the Argonne Forest. Why go thousands of miles across enemy borders to endear yourself to a Choctaw speaker on their home soil if you might be fortunate enough to capture a native Choctaw speaker in battle just a few miles down the road? Now, that sounds like a pretty good solution, until you consider one key problem. Imagine you are the enemy. You capture your Choctaw speaker, you tell them they better translate for you, or else, or you know whatever persuasion you think will be most effective. You provide them with intercepted messages, and then they tell you what those messages say, or do they? How are you going to know that their translations are genuine? After all, they will be the only person in the room, so to speak, who knows both sides of the metaphorical coin. You could make your punishments for mistranslations, should you ever find them out, so severe that the translator doesn't dare make errors, deliberate or otherwise. But even if you do manage to convince your translator to an exemplary, error-free job, you're going to quickly discover another problem. Firstly, this exact scenario has obviously already occurred to the US military, They are trained to anticipate things like the codebook, that is, the native Choctaw speaker, falling into enemy hands. And alongside this, hand-in-hand with it, it turns out that Choctaw has what might seem initially like a raging disadvantage. It didn't originally include many specialised military terms. There were no words for machine guns, or grenades, or casualties. Now, your first reaction might be: well, how on earth can you be a top-secret military comms strategy in battle if you don't even have the basic lexicon? Well, these gaps and holes, what we would call underlexicalization, turned into a superb advantage. The Choctaw speakers went ahead and coined their own coded words. So, for example, little gun shoot meant machine gun. Stone, referred to grenades. Scalps were casualties. It became a bit like code inception, and it essentially further encrypted the language by creating a code within a code. In other words, for the casual Choctaw soldier who had the misfortune to be captured in battle and forced to translate, they might get some of the message, but they couldn't explain what this coded vocabulary meant. And this is a good time to mention that not all Choctaw speaking soldiers were enlisted overnight into this new special function. The practicalities of it were that they were widely distributed across the continent. Not all were willing, not all were capable, and the more secret code talkers you recruit and train, the more you have to fall into enemy hands. Keeping the number small is actually essential. In the end, there are two types of Native American code talking, or N-A-C-T. Each involves the use of Native American languages for communication purposes, but the main difference is that type 1 had the extra element, that special code within a code layer. So type 1 code talkers received varying degrees of formal code development and training, and they tended to be purposefully recruited. Type 2 is a more informal, casual use of non-coded Native American languages. So the typical scenario here is that they're accidentally discovered and then used once their potential is realised, but without any prior purposeful recruitment or training. As you might have guessed, this very first instantiation was kind of somewhere in between Type 1 and Type 2. Captain Lawrence didn't recruit these speakers deliberately to code talk the idea just hadn't occurred to him until this moment. So their fluency in Choctaw was very much an after-the-fact realisation, so that's classic type 2. But then they created these extra code words within the Choctaw language and this moved directly into type 1 N-A-C-T. So how did this play out in the Argonne Forest with Captain Lawrence, Solomon Lewis and Mitchell Bob? What happened next? Captain Lawrence has Lois and Bob call company headquarters where a few other Choctaw speakers are based and he tells them to deliver a message in their native language. This is not really a shock. As you would absolutely expect, it's instantly translated back into English, faster than any machine of the day. Error-free, effortless. It's so simple and quick and perfect. According to our best information now, 19 Choctaw soldiers are swiftly employed as the Choctaw Telephone Squad. In an exact replication of the first trial, the men send and receive messages in their native tongue, which they then translate back into English, and this is yet another proof of concept. But it's one thing to do this whilst relatively safe, messaging company HQ or each other as a test, it's quite something else to do it for real during a live military operation where lives are at stake and that day swiftly comes. It's now pitch black on the night of the 26th of October 1918, that's barely a fortnight after Captain Lawrence has overheard that very first fateful conversation between Lewis and Bob. Two companies of soldiers need to be withdrawn from the front under the cover of darkness. The code talkers are employed to be the comms for the mission, relaying back and forth critical information as the two or 300 soldiers silently make their way to safety. Remember, US comms are compromised, phone lines are tapped, it's almost guaranteed that the enemy is listening in and if they crack the code, they have the chance to launch a surprise attack. So will the code talking work? The mission is an outstanding success. The companies are safely withdrawn. The comms appear to have been impenetrable. The triumph has very unsurprising consequences. Only two days later, the Code Talkers are tasked with assisting in a plan to attack a strongly fortified German position called the Forest Fermi. 72 hours later, US and Allied troops are on the offensive, driving the Germans into full retreat. It is very quickly obvious how valuable and useful the Choctaw Code Talkers are, Almost instantly, their covert communications are instrumental in helping US troops win several key battles. But just as this success is establishing itself, only a little over a month after the very first mission, on the 11th of November 1918, the war ends. The consensus, however, is that had it continued, the Code Talkers would have provided an incalculable advantage, and they would have saved countless lives. Well, what evidence do we have for this? World War II. The reality is, for many people, if they do know about wartime code-talking, most, if not all, of the information that they've learned about it has come from the 2002 film Wind Talkers. It's a reasonably good film. It follows the experiences of two Navajo code-talkers and their bodyguards, so to speak, serving in a marine unit in the Pacific theatre during World War II, And parts of the film are based on true events, but it's drawn criticism. Mainly, it overlooks the true experiences of Navajo code talkers and actually spends a lot more time focusing on everyone else. Now, this is somewhat grimly ironic for reasons I will get back to later on. The film also doesn't look beyond Navajo, and this was not the only Native American language used for code talking during World War II. I mean, it's a little more understandable that the use of Choctaw in World War I doesn't get a mention. I mean, it was a different war from two decades earlier, after all, and the Choctaw soldiers only got a month to showcase what they could do. But it's also important to remember that the decision to use speakers of Navajo and other Native American languages during World War II was directly informed by the success of Choctaw co talkers at the end of World War I. In fact, in the grand arena of a global war, this tiny gem, this momentary intelligence advantage of using Choctaw, could so easily have vanished. You'll hear a little bit more about this towards the end. There was a lot going on. Not everyone was writing everything down and feeding it back to their superiors. It would have been so easy for it to be first unacknowledged, and again I'll come back to this theme later, and then entirely forgotten. Fortunately, however, Philip Johnston, a World War I veteran, happens to both know the Navajo language due to his upbringing on a Navajo reservation by his missionary parents, and then he proposes the idea of Navajo code-talkers after reading about Choctaw code-talking during World War I. The context now, however, is very different. This is the start of a new campaign rather than the end of an old one, and the concept has already been proven successful. This time, much larger resources are thrown at the idea. Compared to the 19 or so Choctaw code-talkers of World War I, the Navajo code-talking unit is over 20 times larger. More than 400 identified individuals will ultimately serve as part of the US Marine Corps' 3rd, 4th and 5th divisions during World War II. Forming in the spring of 1942, the original group of Navajo recruits are dubbed the First 29, And they immediately impress the signals officer by accurately translating, transmitting, and retranslating a message in two and a half minutes, a feat that usually takes about four hours using the old system. In fact, the Navajo language is quickly found to be especially suited to code talking. Even other Native American speakers find it particularly difficult to master. Why? Well, Navajo is a tonal language. This is similar to languages like Mandarin, Punjabi, Igbo, Cantonese, Zulu, Thai, and so forth. This means that a difference in pitch and inflection can alter the meaning of a word that sounds the same. So in English, for instance, if you say yes or yes or yes, it's still just the word yes. The pragmatic meaning might change, so one sounds a bit more questioning and another sounds a bit more irritated, but it is still just the word yes. Essentially, English is basically not a tonal language, though we can impart extra meaning through tone. By contrast, Navajo has four distinct tones for its vowels. So you've got a low, a high, a rising and a falling. So I'll try and do it again with the yeses. So yes, 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 yes. I am very, very bad at tonal languages. I am so sorry. Anyway, Speakers of non-tonal languages tend to struggle with tonal languages, not merely learning that the tones exist and learning to use them, but even just hearing the tones in spoken language. And now I've actually spent a few years trying to learn Cantonese, which is a tonal language, and I can tell you I've found it unbelievably difficult just hearing the tone to try and replicate it to start with. So if you don't even know a tonal language exists, your chances of decoding that language are pretty much nil. In other words, Navajo could realistically only be translated by other speakers of the language. So unsurprisingly, after the success of Choctaw code-talking in World War I, Germany and Japan have been studying Native American languages, and this could have so easily undermined the effort from the very beginning. But the fact that Navajo is a tonal language, its lack of writing, and the very few speakers all substantially complicate matters for the enemy. Now. Not just any speakers of Navajo are allowed to join the Marine Corps code-talking team, as I've mentioned before, you have to keep the numbers low anyway, but there are two main requirements for those who want to join. They have to be fluent bilinguals, no surprise, in Navajo and English, and also they have to meet the necessary physical requirements. Now, some Native Americans are drafted, that means that they are legally obliged to serve, whether they wish to or not, but many volunteer, and some even falsify documents, hiding the fact that they are underage so that they can join. Once formed, the Navajo team gets to work on developing their code based on their native tongue, and just like Choctaw, Navajo lacks quite a few military words. So, just as in World War I, these gaps in the lexicon are turned from a possible drawback into a major advantage. Submarines become iron fish. America is our mother. Fighter planes are hummingbirds. And so on. As before, this creates a code within a code But unlike the Choctaw team that only had time to coin about 20 new words, the Navajo code list ends up consisting of over 400 terms. No surprise, for security, these have to be memorised. You can't write them down anywhere because this poses an immediate and substantial risk. But this isn't all. The Navajo code talkers develop a further system modelled to some extent on the NATO phonetic alphabet. So you've probably heard of Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, etc. So this is basically a list of agreed upon Navajo words, each used to represent individual letters. But pay attention here, because this is very slightly complicated. The corresponding letter from the word is not the first letter of the word as it's said in Navajo. It's the first letter of the word when it's translated back into English. So this adds yet more encryption. So, for instance, let's say I want to spell the word down. The cosman might speak the Navajo word. Be, which translates into the English word deer, so that gives you your D. So it's not the B from be, it's the D from deer. Then they might use aka, which translates to oil in English, that gives you the O. Then glowy translates to weasel, there's your W, and tsa translates to needle, your N. Thus you get D O W N. But it's been derived from be, aka, glowy, tsa. Remember, Navajo is tonal. I told you I can't speak tonal languages, and I obviously cannot speak Navajo at all. So all of my pronunciations there were appalling, guaranteed. Anyway, this is a nice way of doing the phonetic alphabet, but there's still a problem. With enough intercepted messages and enough time and effort, even this transposition can be cracked. So let's say there's a lot of a certain type of plane flying about. Let's say GX-5s, for instance. Now, if you're referring to GX5s over and over, that's going to start to form a consistent pattern in the data, and consistency is how most codes are cracked. English spelling too has its consistency, so E's are substantially the most common letter, Z's are substantially the least common letter, and you can make a list of letter frequencies, compare them against this supposedly encrypted set of letters in, for instance, Navajo, and quickly work out which ones are standing in for the Es, and which ones are standing in for the Ts, and which ones are the Zs, and so on. And once you have a few, you can start making educated guesses at the rest, and that's when the whole code falls apart. So frequency analysis is just one method of code breaking, and in technical terms, a one-to-one transposition cipher like this, where you always just switch one thing for one other thing, just isn't that secure. So you need an extra layer of complexity. And that's exactly what the Navajo speakers did. Instead of just having one word for each letter, they agreed on three possibilities for each letter and they could use any of the three each time. So even if you had the same letter repeating itself in a word like book, for instance, got O in there twice, you could use two different O's and that makes it so much more difficult for the code breaker to crack. Now, in the end, the code is in fact so sophisticated that even other Navajo speakers find it impossible to decipher. So, for instance, Joe Kiyumia, who is being held as a prisoner of war in Japan, is repeatedly handed intercepted messages to decode. code. Despite his best efforts, he simply cannot translate them into anything meaningful, and unfortunately, he is tortured as a result but it does show that the Navajo Code has achieved a level where it cannot be broken by an untrained native speaker, even under the most awful duress. It can only be understood by those Navajo speakers who have been specially trained as code talkers. Despite this complexity, however, one of the major advantages of the code talkers is their speed. The mechanical systems of the day are extremely slow, Sometimes unreliable and can, of course, fall into enemy hands along with the codebooks needed to operate them. But code talking is almost as fast as ordinary conversation, and the codebooks have already been distributed. It's the language in the brains of the Navajo speakers. So, just one example of their speed and effectiveness is the US victory in the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. Three pairs of Navajo code talkers work for two straight days, sending and receiving over 800 messages, and when later checked, these messages contain absolutely no errors whatsoever. In the end, there is a general belief, though obviously we're never likely to find out to the contrary, that the enemy codebreakers never managed to crack code talker messages in either World War I or World War II. Such success seems to speak for itself, and yet this story, like so many in the Enclair series, does not end the way it should. The first question that it's fairly difficult to answer is why Native Americans would even want to enlist and serve in the US military to begin with. Take the Choctaw people, for instance. The 19th century was especially difficult for them. During the War of 1812, they fought alongside the US, but then they were forced into giving up most of their land to the government. Then, after the 1830 Indian Removal Act was signed into law, over the next 50 years, around 12,000 Choctaw are forced to relocate to areas west of the Mississippi River, a journey that cost around 2,500 lives and was later infamously dubbed the Trail of Tears. And history has documented, though perhaps not even loudly enough, many other awful acts and atrocities that the native american groups have had to face why would they choose to fight alongside the very same people who've mistreated them and their ancestors the answer as in any case like this is as complicated as any individual or group or culture in his 2007 book on code talkers william meadows suggests that most joined for a complex combination of traditional sociocultural influences warrior-based themes Acculturative influences, boarding school training. Current economic factors, employment. Patriotism for the defence of their own lands, peoples and the United States. And the opportunity to travel outside of their local Indian community or reservation. In fact, as I mentioned in passing earlier, voluntary enlistments were actually found to considerably outweigh drafts and some were even forging documents to ensure their enlistment. Ironically, however, that most invaluable asset that was busy saving lives abroad, the Native American language, was just one of the very aspects of Native American culture that the US was working hard to stamp out. Enforced cultural assimilation was extreme. Native American children were being placed in state-run schools where they weren't allowed to speak their native tongue without facing severe punishment. The appalling irony is that languages like Choctaw and Navajo were under severe threat as the US government at home sought to eradicate the very thing that was giving them an incalculable military advantage abroad on the front lines. Despite this systemic oppression and appalling treatment, different groups of Native American peoples went to war on the side of the US. Perhaps some may have chosen to do so precisely because they knew what it was to live under tyranny. Whatever the case, despite the extraordinary success of the Code Talkers, even after the wars, there was little appetite for celebrating and honouring the contributions of these individuals, and unsurprisingly, therefore, there was no significant change in the attitudes surrounding Native American peoples back on US soil. Indeed, any recognition of Native American Code Talkers has been painfully slow and it varies heavily depending on the group in question. From the end of World War II in 1945, Almost 30 years will elapse, in which time the Choctaw code talkers will receive no formal recognition from the US military at all. The only acknowledgement of them is a single document in the American Expeditionary Forces records, a few brief references in newspaper articles, and whatever mention is made of them in various officers' memoirs. It doesn't help, though it's also not surprising, that the code talkers themselves were sworn to secrecy. This is fairly standard for any sort of intelligence-based line of work in the military. Something so operationally beneficial is at its most useful when the fewest possible people know about it. So secrecy is essential to preserving its effectiveness. In fact, there have been claims, though unsubstantiated, that Navajo code-talking was used during the Korean and Vietnam Wars too. Perhaps this is true, perhaps not. Whatever the case, it isn't until 1968, When Navajo code talking is finally declassified. But even then, it remains largely unheard of, especially for non Navajos. In Marshall's words, declassification did not mean dissemination. Finally, in 1982, almost 40 years after the end of World War II, the Navajo code talkers are nationally recognized. Public Law 97-225 deems that the 14th of August 1982 is the National Navajo Code Talkers Day. Yep, just the Navajo Code Talkers. The rest are apparently forgotten. Still. It takes almost another 20 years for the House to pass a bill in 2000 authorising the President to present Congressional Gold Medals. These are the highest civilian awards to the Navajo Code Talkers and the ceremony takes place on the 26th of July, 2001. It may be for this reason that the Windtalkers film is then released a year later, as the Code Talkers begin to enter national public consciousness. But again, whilst all of this is progress, only the Navajo are acknowledged. Veterans from other Native American peoples ask why they, too, are not receiving the same level of recognition, and finally, on the 15th of October, 2008 half a century after the end of World War II, within my adult lifetime, the Code Talkers Recognition Act of 2008 is introduced. It is due to this law that as of 2013, Code Talkers from 33 different Native American peoples, including the Choctaw, are finally recognised and receive medals. That's not even 10 years ago. Sadly, this is a fairly bittersweet success. The recognition, though small, is arriving at last, but for many it is simply too late. The majority of veterans have passed away before this recent surge of interest and recognition. And now that there is interest, it's become clear how little we know about code talking There are few documents, the accounts are scattered, and many code talkers took their stories with them to the grave honouring their commitment to secrecy and not even telling their closest loved ones about what they had done during the war. There is no real way to fix this incalculable loss of human history, nor to make up for decades of recognition that never happened. But there is one thing we can do, and that is to know the names of the very first Code Talkers who paved the way for everything that came afterwards. Choctaw Code Talkers, as you now know, are the original co-talkers who served in World War I. They were part of the 141st, 142nd, and 143rd Infantry Regiments. There are currently 19 Choctaw soldiers who have been identified, and their names are as follows: Albert Billy, Mitchell Bob, Victor Brown, Ben Caterby, Benjamin Colbert, George Davenport. Joseph Davenport, James Jimson M. Edwards, Tobias Frazier, Benjamin W. Hampton, Noel Johnson, Otis Leader, Solomon Bond-Lewis, Pete Maytubby, Jeff Nelson, Joseph Oglahombe, Robert Taylor, Walter Veach, and Calvin Wilson. Did this episode pique your curiosity? Would you like to know more about wartime cryptography and decryption? What is it like to be on the side of the code breakers? Would you even like to learn something about those slow mechanical methods of encryption and decryption that I touched on in this episode? Well, if you haven't already, listen to episodes 13, 14 and 15 from the end of season 1. This episode of Unclair was researched and fact-checked by my intern, Marissa Dooley, and it was narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash Onclair. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Underscore Onclair. Or if you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H.